Hebrews chapter 11, we'll start at verse 1. Our verse is verse 4, by faith Abel. But we'll begin at verse 1. Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Christ, and we ask you by the word of Christ to show us also your will. Grant to us faith, the faith that Abel had. Grant us even stronger faith. Grant us faith that will endure until the end. We pray for your Holy Spirit to be present, that the Spirit of Christ here will guide us into the wisdom that we need from Christ. May everything, Lord, glorify you and please Christ. For we ask in his name. Amen. Now, in our passage in Hebrews chapter 11, we've come to a place where the apostle begins to illustrate examples of faith by certain individuals. All these individuals lived in the period of the Old Testament, before the coming of Christ in the time of the apostles. These individuals are presented to us. Why does he do this? Why does he do this? He does this because it says in Romans 15, 4, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That's the purpose, or one of the purposes, that is to see that these people of faith in the Old Testament, they experienced some of the same afflictions, some of the same uncertainties and hardships that we did, and yet they persevered, so that we might have hope and we might persevere in the faith just as they did. Moreover, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, it says, Now these things happen to them as examples to uh, us, so that we should not crave evil things as they also crave. Some of the people of the past in the Old Testament, not those in Hebrews 11, they were the positive examples, but some of those in the Old Testament who are contrasted to the righteous, such as Abel, Abel's brother Cain, why is Cain's example there in Genesis 4 with Abel? It's there so that we should not crave evil things as they also crave. We learn by good examples, but we also learn by bad examples, is the point. And finally, why is it that the apostle will take pains in this chapter to illustrate so many of these examples of faith? It says in 2 Corinthians 4, 15, For all things are for your sakes that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Why is it? Because everything that exists in the world exists for the benefit of the people of God. Everything. And all the more, the words of Scripture are here to benefit us, the people of God, and that this might spread to more and more people, that there might be even more people of God, and we might give thanks to God for everything, to glorify God, for our benefit and for the glory of God. This is why Hebrews 11 is written this way, to give us these examples. Firstly, then, 
Now let's look at chapter 11, verse 4, and what he says. He says, By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. He says, by faith. And as we see, as we read the rest of this chapter, he introduces every example with this phrase, by faith, by faith. Because everything originates in faith, in true faith. He's not talking about fickle and false faith. He's talking about real faith, genuine faith, true faith. Everything begins that way. He started the chapter that way. Faith is, you might ask, what is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It is assurance and conviction about the unseen world. It's not the physical world we're talking about. We're talking about the unseen world. We believe, we trust, we put our hope and confidence and assurance in those things that are not yet seen. That's what true faith is. Therefore, he says, everyone of the past, the men of old, gained approval this way. This is the kind of faith that is important and is necessary for each one of us to have. It begins with the creation of the world, for how can we believe in the world to come unless we believe in the origin of this world? Because the two are bound up together. The, he who created this world is the same one who creates the world to come. If we believe in the, this one, this creator of this world in the proper way, then we will believe in the creator of the world to come in the proper way. And Abel was one of them. He had this kind of faith. Now, how important is this faith? Verse 6, Hebrews eleven six 6 says, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. It is necessary to have faith because it's impossible to please God without faith. Impossible. We cannot please God unless we have this true faith. Because when we have this faith, we come to God, we must believe that He is. You cannot have faith in something or someone that does not exist. We must believe that He is. And not only that, but He is good. He's loving, He's kind, He's gracious, because He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. We have to believe in the goodness of God in the beneficence of God, that he has an abundance of things that we do not possess. That's what faith believes. It trusts in that kind of goodness of God. Not only is it impossible, as he says in verse 6, to please God, Romans 14, 23 says, whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever we do, we must do in faith faith in Christ, otherwise everything before that, and even as Christians, if we don't act in accordance to faith, we sin. As Christians, we sin without faith, and everyone who's an unbeliever sins day by day. They may not admit it, they may not even know it. They may be told otherwise by their own ministers, but they do sin, because they don't have true faith in Christ. We must be true believers with true faith in Christ. Furthermore, he says that Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. He offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. 
Now, why did he offer a better sacrifice than Cain? This has perplexed many interpreters. It should not, though. It's quite simple and straightforward. For one, we just said that it's impossible to please God without faith. And remember it said in Genesis chapter 4, verse 4, the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but the Lord did not have regard for Cain and for his offering. Why does the text of Scripture say it that way? He had regard for Abel and then his offering, but not for Cain and his offering. Because the person himself, Abel himself had faith, Cain did not have faith, and then Abel's true faith showed in a true sacrifice, a true gift to God, but Cain did not bring a proper gift to God because he lacked faith. That's what it means. Abel had true faith. That's why he offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. We must clarify that the sacrifice presents itself in a good form and in the right way because it begins with a heart of faith. Firstly, we cannot imagine, as I just said, that we can offer to God anything if we don't have faith. If we offer to God anything and we don't have faith, it is an abomination. Proverbs 15, 8 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. So it's not enough just to present something that you think God wants from you. It's not enough to do that. You have to do it with the right attitude or in the right perspective. It has to be assumed or you have to have preceding that true faith. If there is true faith, then the sacrifice we offer to him will not be an abomination. Cain's sacrifice was an abomination to God. That's why God did not regard it. God rejected it. It was a detestable sacrifice in the sight of God because Cain lacked faith. Abel's sacrifice was better because he had faith. Furthermore, it says here that Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. In what sense does this mean? It means that Cain's offering was deficient, not only because he lacked faith, but the offering itself, the manifestation of his lack of faith, was manifested in this offering that he presented to God. Because the text does say in Genesis 4, verse 5, but for Cain and his offering, he did not have regard. The Lord did not have regard. What then was the problem with Cain's offering? Not only did he lack faith, but he lacked a proper offering. Remember it says in Genesis 4, 4, that, uh, 4, 3 and 4, that Abel, he presented of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. The firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. But Cain offered from the fruit of the ground. Yes, one was a shepherd and the other was a farmer. We know that. But what did Cain not do? Didn't Cain have enough produce from the ground in order to sell that produce and then offer to God a firstling of the flock and of their fat portions? Could he not have done that? Could he not have done that? He didn't do that. But he gave to God a lesser sacrifice. Even though God had told him clearly, 
as we read in Genesis 4, 7. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? That question, that confrontation that God presented to Cain shows that Cain did know, just as Abel knew, just as Adam and Eve knew, what would be pleasing to God as a sacrifice. And yet, Cain refused to obey God. He refused to obey God. As a farmer who could have sold some of his produce to get the firstlings of the flock and present the firstlings of the flock and their fat portions. This he did not do. And therefore, it was not regarded by God. Now then, why did Abel do so and offer a better sacrifice than Cain? Why did Abel do so and offer a better sacrifice than Cain? Why the firstlings of the flock? Why did God insist that the firstlings of the flock ought to be offered as a sacrifice? Because of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who would be the firstborn of Mary and, and then born into the world to pay the penalty for our sins. This is why it says in John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said to, to the people, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was the firstborn child of Mary. So Abel, he had faith that Christ would come into the world and pay the penalty for his sins. That's why he obeyed and trusted in what God said, offer the firstlings of your flock. If you offer the firstlings of your flock in faith, then you know, or we know, everyone knows that you are putting your trust in the coming of the death of Christ. You're not offering the animal there because you think God wants the blood of animals. Or when it's burned, that God somehow is pleased with the soothing aroma of a, a, a burnt or cooked meat. No, that's not what God's looking for. He's not looking for a soothing aroma because he is some passionate God or some God who's got uh, sensual desires that he wants to have a soothing aroma. God's not a man. He's not a man. He's invisible. He is spirit. He does not have physical and tangible features. That's not the way God is. But when God insisted that there be a firstling of the flock, it was Abel who believed that Jesus would come as firstborn and die for his sins and of their fat portions. Why of their fat portions? Because that is, uh, in most cultures, for, with most, most people, the fat is the good part of the meat. So this is just like what David said in 2 Samuel 24, 24. When someone, when he was wanting to purchase a, a piece of land and offer on the altar there sacrifices, the landowner offered to provide everything to him. The, the landowner offered to provide everything to him, but he said, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. 2 Samuel 24, 24. I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. You see, with Cain, he wanted the cheap way. He wanted the easy way. He wanted to give to God less, as less as possible. But Abel said, no, I'm going to give to God the best that I have. I'm going to give to God the best that I have, their fat portions. That's what he did. And that's why his sacrifice was a better sacrifice. Is that not the way it ought to be? If we have true faith, then will we not put our hope 
and trust in the Word of God and do things as prescribed by the Word of God. True faith shows in good fruit. True faith shows in good fruit. Faith, firstly, is a gift of God by grace. Not something we conjure up, not something that's common to every person. True faith is not common to every individual who ever lives. Either naturally born or divine decree, everyone does not have true faith that they merely need to exercise. That's not the way it works. True faith that Abel had is a gift of God. We have to uh, clarify that point because some people think that we, have, we all have true faith and it's just a matter of my exertion, my power, my wisdom, my whim even. When I want to exercise true faith, I'll do it. And when I don't, I don't. And the same with sacrifices. When I want to do what's right, okay. And then when I want do what's right, I'll do it partially or occasionally. No, we need to do it as God prescribes it. How do we know this? Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. That's the gift part. That's the gift of faith part. The gift of grace, salvation, it's all a gift. Then verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. True faith, true works. If we have not, no true works, or it's a feeble effort or feeble sacrifice, something like that, an imperfect sacrifice, God will not receive it. That's the way in which Abel offered by faith a better sacrifice to God than Cain did. It also says, he obtained, by, through which, he obtained testimony that he was righteous. He obtained testimony that he was righteous. The Holy Spirit, by the hand of Moses in Genesis 4, actually says, the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. The word of God declared that he was righteous. He was actually righteous in what he did. Even Jesus confirms the righteousness of Abel in Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, 34. Matthew 23, 34. Jesus says, Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Jesus declares here in verses 34 and 35 that these men were prophets and wise men and scribes, and they were righteous. 35, all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel. It started there. That's the first martyr that we, that we have recorded in Scripture. Abel, he was a righteous man. God declared it in Genesis, and the Lord Jesus confirms it in Matthew 23. Abel was righteous. Now, why do you think, why do you think the text of Scripture here 
is telling us or reminding us that he was righteous. Because we sometimes are prone to thinking, well, if something bad happened to the individual, then he must have been the wrong one. Isn't that the way we think? Because some tragedy, some hardship, or even persecution to death occurs to somebody, well, then he must have done something wrong to deserve all that. And the one who was stronger or wealthier or wiser, we give him the credit. Isn't that what we do? But God says, no, that's not the way it works. What he declares as righteous is righteous. And what God declares as wicked is wicked. That's what perspective we need to have. This is why he tells us that it was that he obtained a testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts. God said it. And if God said that this is righteous, then it is righteous. If God says that that is wicked, then that is wicked. That's the kind of distinction we need to have as God declares it. But it's not just that we might know the distinction, but that we might have those sweet words pronounced to us. Do you remember in Matthew 25, Jesus explains this parable of three slaves. They each receive a portion of money, some money, and then the master goes away and then he comes back. The master is Christ. And when Christ comes back, how faithful will these slaves be? The first two of the slaves were faithful, the last one was not. And he called that last one, you wicked, lazy slave. You wicked, lazy slave. And then he says, cast them into outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But the first two, what did the Lord say to him? The sweet words, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. Well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. It's declared here that Abel was righteous. God testified that he was righteous to encourage us to anticipate those special and sweet words one day when the Lord returns. When the Lord returns, will he reckon us faithful? Will he count us faithful and righteous just as Abel was? Will we also be the same? And further, it says in verse 4, Through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. He still speaks. He is still dead. But because he had this true faith, which manifested in true works, even though he's a dead man, he still speaks. The blood of Abel still speaks. It is not a blood that has been snuffed out so that there is absolutely no memory, no recollection of what happened. It still speaks. Then we have to ask, in what way does the blood of Abel speak? In what way does the blood of Abel speak? Well, we can learn a few lessons from this. How does the blood of Abel speak? For one, we've already said at the beginning that the blood of Abel speaks in the sense that it's recorded in Scripture and it's there for our encouragement and perseverance, Romans 15.4. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now, these things happen to them as examples for us so that we should not crave evil things as they also crave. Firstly, his blood still speaks 
as an example. He sets an example so that we might emulate his example. Secondly, the blood of Abel speaks in terms of perseverance in righteousness. Perseverance in righteousness. His blood still speaks in terms of perseverance in righteousness. Isaiah the prophet, in Isaiah 59, verse 15, he explains the sins of the people. And he says that there's hardly anyone who practices righteousness. He describes the plight of their situation, and he says there's hardly anyone who's righteous. And in fact, if there is a righteous man, this is what happens to him. 59, 15, he says, yes, Truth is lacking, and he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. He tells us in advance that there's going to be few people like this who practice righteousness, and even the one who does practice righteousness makes himself a prey. All that he's doing is living his life day by day. He's not doing what everybody else does in thought, word, and deed. And everybody else looks at him and everybody else ridicules him and says, what's wrong with you? And then he starts being persecuted. He starts being slandered. And even violence might be perpetrated against him. That's what he's uh, describing. Perseverance and righteousness. It's not going to be as though everybody's going to be on your side. In fact, there's going to be just a few people on your side. But you must persevere anyway. Amos chapter 5, Amos 5, and in Amos 5, verse 10, the prophet describes the same thing. He says, He who um, reproves in the gate, they abhor and they hate. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks with integrity. All you have to do is be an honest man and you better watch it. All you have to do is be an honest man, be one of integrity, and you're going to have people who hate you. Even though you, all you did was speak the truth, they will rise up against you. But Abel did so, and Abel persevered. So if Abel did so, and he persevered, and God said basically to Abel, well done, good and faithful slave, will he not do it for us if we persevere? He's an example of perseverance in righteousness. Not only is he an example of perseverance and righteousness, but he's also an example of a remnant. A remnant. That is, that there are many people who are out there. There's many people in the world. And then if you take as a subset of all the people in the world, the many people who claim to be Christians, there are many people who claim to be Christians, right? At least one billion people on the globe claim to be Christians. Then you take from the one billion there's only really a few who are seeking God according to the word of God as prescribed here. There's only a few in percentage in comparison to all who name Christianity and then also in comparison to all of humanity. There's only a few. Abel is an example of that. Is he not? He's an example of that. Firstly, in his own family. In his own family. Adam and Eve believed, Abel believed, we don't know how many others believed, but Cain didn't. And Cain had a wife and he went off on his own. Remember, we read that in Genesis 4. He went off on his own and he, he and his descendants did their own thing. So who was left? 
Likely not many. In the, in the one family, they, there was one righteous man and one murderous wicked man in the same family. It doesn't work that in the same family, everyone's going to believe. It doesn't even happen in the same marriage. Everyone doesn't believe. It doesn't happen in the, among the relatives. Everyone doesn't believe. It doesn't happen that way. In the nation of Israel, and they are an example, it says in Romans 9, 27, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the seashore, it is the remnant that shall be saved. The people of Israel, were they not in the millions upon the millions? Didn't they have the word of God? Didn't they read it every, every week in the synagogue? Didn't they read it? Didn't they hear about it? And they all claimed to be descendants of Abraham. They all claimed to be from one of the tribes of Israel. They all said that they were fine and good. They, were, they had peace between them and God. They all thought so. They all pursued that. And, and Jesus, or, or Paul says in Romans 9, 27, just as Isaiah first said, he's quoting Isaiah, yeah, Isaiah 10, 21, 22, that though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the seashore, yet it is the remnant that shall be saved. Jesus also warned us in Matthew chapter 10 that these things would happen in our own families. These things would happen in our own families. Matthew 10, verse 34. Matthew 10, 34, a, a verse that few people have really considered, and if they do consider it, it causes them great consternation. What in the world did Jesus mean? Because I, we thought Jesus came to bring peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Well, he did come to bring good, uh, uh, peace on earth and goodwill toward men, but not to the exclusion of this. Matthew 10, 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Jesus told us in advance, even he is quoting from Micah, he told us in advance that this would happen in our own households. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. That's what happened to Abel. It will also happen to us. And not only households, but also church even local church, this will happen. It is inevitable that this will happen in the same local church. It happened in the church of Corinth. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 19. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 19. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, in order that those who are approved may become evident among you. He says here that he hears that there are factions, and he believes it in part, because he's not surprised, because this is, this is what happens all the time. It's supposed to happen all the time. Why is it supposed to happen all the time? Verse 19 for there must also be factions. There must. It's inevitable. There must be factions in order that those who are approved 
may become evident among you. It must be this way so that we might know who's on the side of God and who's on the side of the devil. Who's on the side of righteousness and who's on the side of wickedness. That's why things happen and rise up in the local church. Another reason, a fourth reason, why Abel, though he's dead, he still speaks, is justice. Didn't it say in Genesis 4.10, the blood, God said to Cain, the blood of your brother is crying out to me from the ground. It's crying out to me from the ground. What does that mean? It's saying that there must be a time of justice. There is a time of reckoning. There is a day of judgment when everything will be rectified, everything will be resolved. And Abel is a reminder of that. Even though we are mistreated, even though we have these kinds of hardships, one person against another, or the wicked against the righteous, the unbeliever against the believer, even though that happens now, we should not be so discouraged and dispirited that we walk away from the faith. But we need to put our hope in the day of judgment, the time to come when God will resolve all of this, when justice will be meted out, when there will be no dispute. On that day, God will take care of everything. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? How much more matters of this life? Do you not know? Do, do you not know that we ourselves will be so elevated on that day of judgment, right there with the Lord Jesus Christ, that we will judge our enemies? We will judge the world. That is, Abel will judge his brother Cain. And Abel will be a part of throwing Cain into hell. Abel, the righteous one, will throw his brother Cain into hell on the day of judgment. That's the way it works. And even the saints pray this way in Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, 9 to 11, the saints who are before the throne of God, they pray like this. We may say that Abel is among these. Revelation 6, 9. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each one of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been should be completed also, what's the, what's the encouragement there? That the saints in heaven pray for that day of vengeance to come. And when that day of vengeance comes, everything will be resolved. But what needs to happen in the meantime? We ourselves may be the objects of the same kind of persecution, even to death, just like Abel. But don't worry. God will take care of it. And we will join the company of the faithful forever in heaven. And then lastly, the last reason, the, the reason that though he is dead, he still speaks, is in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. Chapter 10, verse 4. Which says that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. 
It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Though everything we've said about Abel is right, the goal is not to stop at Abel. The goal is not to stop there, but to keep going until we come to Christ. Because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Abel was not saved because he put a dead animal or he slaughtered an animal and put that blood on the altar. That's not the, the reason for it. How could we imagine that an animal that's a lesser creature than a human could pay for our sins? No. In fact, Hebrews 10.5 says, Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice an offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifice and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. And what is the second? The death of Christ. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Abel put his faith in Christ. Therefore, we also should put our faith in Christ. Don't put confidence in anything we do. Don't put confidence in anything we uh, think. Nothing like that. Our only confidence should be Jesus Christ and him alone. Abel did so. Moses did so. David did so. Abraham did so. They all did so. We should do the same as well. Remember, Hebrews eleven twenty six. Moses regarded the reproach of Christ greater riches, for he was looking to the reward. Let's do the same. Let Abel be an example for us to pursue righteousness and hate lawlessness, to pursue Christ and not the world. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you'll grant us true faith, the faith that we have just heard. We pray, Lord, that our faith would be fixed on Christ, that your Holy Spirit would work among us, that salvation would come to our households. Lord, we want this, and we want to see you glorified and pleased in our life. Lord, we have long, uh, long lived for the world, the flesh and the devil. Lord, we have lived for the things of this world. We have desired the lust of the eyes, the lust of the, the eyes and the boastful pride of life but we pray that you'll take away these things from us. Take them away completely and bring salvation. Those who, uh, among us who are not true believers, may true salvation come, just as it did to Zacchaeus. May it come to our households. We pray also that we who know you, we who trust you, we who long for the day to come when we will see Christ face to face, that we will be encouraged, that we'll be built up by this word, that we will live according to your word. May we not compromise anymore. May we not be wayward in the way that we live our Christian life, but day by day grow stronger and thereby please you and glorify your name. We live for you and not for ourselves. In Christ's name, amen.